Welcome to another episode of The Chat. My name is Elisha Nightingale, and I am here with Alan Mills, the Executive Director of Uptown People's Law Center. Thank you for joining us today. You're very welcome. It's always a pleasure. Likewise. And I met you some years back because you were just a predominant figure in Chicago and the state of Illinois. You do so much work around prisoner rights, medical care, disability rights. Uh, it's very inspiring. A lot of people who are interested in civil rights work look up to you and the work that you've done. So, you know, I'd love to know a little bit more about like why you care, like you got into this work a long time ago. So what was it that originally got you into this work and like kind of what is it that keeps you caring about the people that are, that are behind bars? Uh, well, the easy answer is my mom. Um, way back in Baltimore in the 1960s, um, she was very involved in the, at that point, um, civil rights movement, mainly revolving around fair housing. Um, but then as the civil rights movement evolved, she sort of shifted from um, that sort of civil rights work to dealing with some prisoners, uh, people she had met during the civil rights movement itself. Um, started visiting prisons. Um, I, the first time I actually visited a prison was in high school. And um, at that point, I was very into photography for the high school. And my mom asked me to come inside the Baltimore City Jail and take pictures of some of the jail. And so that was actually my first time walking into a prison. And I can't say that I um, loved it. It was uh, not, a, not a pleasant experience and it was a little scary. Um, but I got some good pictures out of it, and it was certainly a, uh, a unique experience. Um, I had also been involved, uh, the first trial I ever sat through was one on behalf of the Berrigan brothers, um, who had uh, poured blood on draft records in Baltimore, um, shortly before the Catonsville 9 case, which is much more famous, but the Baltimore 4 case uh, was actually earlier than that. Um, uh, my mom was friends with their lawyer, and I sat through the parts of the trial, uh, only to find that the trial had been and it had to be declared a mistrial because Martin Luther King was assassinated during the middle of that trial and the trial a mistrial was declared and they had to start over again. Um, so I thought all of that was sort of very cool and I, I had been thinking about lawyering and all that because really my mom's work and some other friends, adult friends of my parents who were do doing that kind of work. And uh, so that, that was why I went to law school in the first place is to do some sort of civil rights work. I wanted some sort of community-based work and then I just kind of fell into the Uptown People's Law Center uh, because I lived in Uptown uh, while I went to law school and was looking for something to do after my first year of law school to stay sane. Um, I more or less knocked on the front door of the Uptown People's Law Center and do you need any help? Uh, that was in the fall of 1979. Um, we are now in the fall of 2021, slightly more than 22 years later, and I'm still here. So I guess they wanted my help. Uh, <laughs> and it just turned out that the Uptown People's Law Center had already created the model of what I wanted to do. Um, so I volunteered for two years during law school and then didn't begin working there right away because they didn't have a full-time lawyer. Uh, instead, I went to work for Jim Chapman, who was the uh, president of the board of the law center and had a small personal injury and other sort of trial litigation practice downtown. Um, but he, his firm at that point was really uh, a way to support uh, his pro bono work. Um, so about half of my time remained pro bono work, including about a third of my time for the Uptown People's Law Center and the rest citywide. Right. And, it was, and during that, and the Uptown People's Law Center, its founders, well before I started you know, volunteering here, believed that people from the community who went into prison were still members of the community and therefore that should be part of the mission of the Uptown People's Law Center and how we supported the community that we were located in. Um, so my first visit to the Cook County Jail happened uh, during the 
uh, following summer, the, so the summer of 1980, um, went down in the bowels of the old Division One to meet with a couple of guys who were facing murder charges uh, from uptown. Um, who were and how supported. old were you at that time? Uh, sure, make me do math. Um, probably <laughs> 21, 20, okay. 21, something like that. Okay, wow. Um, <laughs> Just trying to get the whole picture here. Right. Still young. Still young. Had no idea what I was doing. Uh, again, it was sort of a very weird experience. I went with a paralegal um, who was working at the, at the Uptown People's Law Center at that point, who was much older and had way more experience um, going back to the um, the voting the voting rights drives in Mississippi during the 60s. Um, that's how she sort of got involved in the civil rights movement um, from middle class New Jersey down to Mississippi and then never turned back. Uh, so she'd, she'd done a lot of work with prisoners and a lot of work in the community and a lot of work with all kinds of civil rights people. Um, so that's how I got involved. That, that was her, she was my mentor in terms of the jails uh, and prisons and what that all meant. Um, and then, then we got involved. We at the Uptown People's Law Center got involved actually first with a, what turned into a class action lawsuit brought again by a prisoner who came from Uptown. Um, about, and he was in solitary and he had like 30 years of solitary left to do. Uh, on his like 30 year sentence. So he'd spend the rest of his life basically in solitary. Um, and uh, he had filed this case, uh, which complained about a whole lot of things. But one of the things that he complained about was access to the courts, um, saying, I'm in solitary. I have no way to get to the law library. Um, they threatened to beat the crap out of me if I ever asked to go to the law library again. And they just said, that's not available. So stop asking. So I know I don't know what I'm doing, but here's my complaint. Uh, and then the state was going to depose him. And he wrote to the Uptown People's Law Center saying, um, I don't know anything about the law, but I do know when the state questions you under oath, you ought to have a lawyer present because I learned that during my criminal call, my criminal case. So can you come down and represent me in this deposition? And we said, all right, fine. Um, and from that, it turned into a statewide class action case, which lasted about 19 years, um, wow. winning, winning several preliminary rulings in the district court and ultimately the Seventh Circuit ruling um, that we never had standing. Wow. start the case in the first place. So wiping out all those good work we've done over the last uh, you know, 18, 19 years in that case. However, totally unknown to us, the way to actually get your name out in prisons is to do an access to the courts case because you meet all of the jailhouse lawyers and everybody who's trying to get to court. Those are your witnesses. Those are your contacts. Uh, and you know, the Uptown People's Law Center is a community-based organization and we treated our cases in prison the same way. It's just a community who happens to be in, in behind bars. So we spent a lot of time visiting with prisoners, writing back and forth to prisoners. And frankly, why I stay involved, I, I've always said, once you actually understand what our prison system is like, it's hard to sit there and just ignore it. Um, it's hard not to do something about it. At least for me, it's a society I don't want to live in unless I'm trying to change it. Um, so really, from one of the first days I've walked into prison, I'm like, there has to be something we can do about this. This can't be right. Um, and, you know, I, I had the, I don't know if it's the privilege or the, the uh, punishment, but I, going into one of the worst of the Cook County uh, units in, the, in my first visit, um, Division One was old, built in the 19, in early 1900s, um, a terrible place to be, um, and corrupt as all anything. Um, you know, at that point, it was still very much run by the machine, by the Democratic machine here in Chicago. And, uh, you know, if you wanted to favor some guards, there were things you did. Uh, and that's how you got uh, contraband in and anything else. So it was obviously not a, a well-run institution as we would all think of it as. Um, so that was, that was kind of how I got hooked into it and uh, never left. I've been doing uh, it since then. 
<laughs> well, and we're so glad that you are, um, you know, that it all started off with photography and the inspiration of your mother all the way to looking at the decrepit bowels of the Cook County Jail because, yeah, you've touched a lot of lives and, um, and we appreciate your work so much. So thank you, thank you for telling us your backstory. Um, and I would love to hear, you are big on decarceration. Um, some call it abolition, but letting people out, especially rather than transferring them or doing these kind of alternative things, you think there's a lot of people that could just be sent home. So can you tell us a little bit about why you feel that way and what's going on currently in Cook County? Sure. Uh, it's, been a, it's been an evolution. It's been a personal evolution. Um, you know, 30 years, actually what people don't remember is back in the mid 60s to late 60s, there was a real dispute in this country as to whether or not jails and prisons had really outlived their usefulness and that we were incarcerating way too many people and we should really try something else. Um, instead, we went the total opposite direction. Um, today, 1970 looks like the heyday um, when we had that tiny little prison system compared to what you have now. It was, it's currently seven plus times as big um, as it was back when we were talking about it was too big already. Um, so this isn't a brand new conversation, but it's certainly one that had disappeared for uh, most of those intervening almost 50 years now. Um, and, you know, just over the last decade, clearly abolition has become a hot topic, has become something that is, again, part of the public discussion uh, in a way it had never been uh, through most of my adult life anyway. And I always um, hark back to um, one of my favorite authors, Marianne Cabas, um, statement that you may start off as a reformer, but if you pay attention to what's going on, you're going to become an abolitionist. Um, there just isn't a way to reform the system so that we don't do serious harm to the people we lock up and also, frankly, to the victims um, of their crimes. It's just not a system that serves anyone very well, costs us as a society a lot of money um, and doesn't work and inflicts serious harm on lots and lots and lots of people, millions of people. And of course, as uh, most people know, um, it's an experiment in mass incarceration, which, first of all, is unheard of in the rest of the in the history of the world. Um, the United States incarcerates far more people, both as an actual number and as a percentage of people than any other country in the world ever has done. Um, you know, even places like South Africa at the height of apartheid, uh, Russia at the height of its uh, gulag. Uh, didn't didn't approach what the United States is now doing in terms of the percentage of its people that are locked up. So, and that experiment in mass incarceration, first of all, has been a failure, but more importantly, and from my point of view, has not been shared equally among society. Um, it's an experiment which has largely been done on young black men. Um, one of the scariest statistics is among high school dropouts, um, young black men are more, more than half of them will end up in prison at some point in their lives. Mm -hmm. And that's just a, a terrifying statistic as far as I'm concerned. It sends a really bad message to the public at large um, that it's okay to think of young black men as criminals because yeah, we're gonna lock them up eventually anyway. So you might as well just treat them all as criminals in the first place. Um, and you know, that, that's, that certainly feeds into the racism. It's, it's a cyclical thing, a self-reinforcing cycle. Um, you treat people as, as if they're going to be criminals. You cut them out of the, the main economy through both employment and housing and every other kind of discrimination there is, um, give them terrible schooling and uh, make them live in poverty. And then you act surprised when things, uh, when they don't buy into society's rules, um, which is never a society that was designed for them in the first place. And they end up committing a crime, often starts as a crime of survival, just the underground economy is all there is uh, in order to make money. So 
we, we really need to restructure those things rather than trying to hide our social problems behind prison walls. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you mentioned that um, recently there's something going on where the county jail is trying to transfer more people into prison as a, and they could potentially be released. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, currently in the last week, there's been a, for the last six months or so, there's been a brewing fight between the Department of Corrections and um, the Cook County Sheriff as well, other sheriffs around the state. But the vast majority of prisoners come from Cook County or the vast biggest plurality of prisoners come from Cook County. Um, so that's by far the biggest operator here. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, Governor Pritzker simply said, everybody's going to stop moving. Um, just like all of us got locked down in our houses, there was no movement at all between any of the jails and the prisons, and frankly, no movement between prisons. Um, they just said, everybody's in place, we're going to stop this thing from spreading as best we can. Um, so there were several months where nobody was moved from Cook County Jail to the prison system. Uh, normally, as soon as you're convicted, the next day that there's a bus going, you're put on that bus and you're transferred to the, to the Department of Corrections. Um, right after sentencing. Right after sentencing, right. I mean, you may be held for a couple of days because they don't run buses seven, seven days a week, but it'll happen within the next couple of days normally. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was six months where nobody was moved at all. Um, and then people were moved only if they had been um, tested negative. And I think, I think it was you had to be tested negative and wait 14 days and then test again negative before you could be sent off to the prison system. That way, making sure that there was nobody positive coming into the prisons. Um, lots of sheriffs throughout the state didn't have that testing capacity and therefore also weren't, their people weren't being accepted to, into, um, into the state prison system. Um, now, now that got, that got lifted um, in, I think, August of, uh, a little over a year ago in August. Um, but the Department of Corrections is still trying to socially distance, not double sell people until they're sure that people aren't, um, aren't positive for COVID and taking other steps to try to reduce the spread of COVID in the prisons. So they had it down. So there are only about five cases in the entire state among prisoners. Uh, unfortunately, right now, um, I didn't look at the figures the last couple of days, but it was over, over 100 um, again, uh, which is way better than it was at the height of it, which was December or so, December, January of a year and a half ago. Um, at that point, there were about 10,000 prisoners who had tested positive, almost a third of the entire population had tested positive for COVID. Uh, to get it down to five was miraculous. Uh, unfortunately, with the opening up of, uh, of the prisons, both guards coming in without being tested and new prisoners coming in, um, despite the fact that prisoners have a much higher vaccination rate than the population at large, um, COVID is beginning to spread again in prisons, slowly but spreading. So the Department of Corrections, I think quite reasonably, doesn't want a flood of new people in who aren't tested, who they're not sure are not um, negative, and anybody who comes in has to quarantine. And quarantine then means they need more space. And frankly, the Department of Corrections doesn't, is down in the number of people they have in their prison population, but not enough so that they always have room in the intake unit to take in new quarantine cases. That means that there's still people sitting at Cook County Jail, uh, according to Tom Dart, the sheriff, about 500 people who have been convicted and normally would have been transferred to the Department of Corrections. So you really have a, a fight over um, you know, who, who is responsible for these people that, who is responsible for locking these people up um, who have been convicted of a crime. Um, and many of them have, have very short sentences. What people don't realize is the average sentence in Illinois is somewhere, or the average stay in the Department of Corrections is well under two years. Um, so there's a lot of in and out. And what the, part of the reason for that is because people sit in Cook County Jail before trial 
And then they get a year sentence and they can earn good time right away. So your sentence is cut in half. If you spent six months in county jail, you get a year sentence. Then you technically go to the Department of Corrections, but you go to the Department of Corrections and then go up back at your release the same day. Um, so there, there typically have been hundreds of people each month that get transferred from Cook County Jail to the Department of Corrections only for the purpose of being processed and then they're driven right back to County Jail and released. During, a lot of bureaucracy just to, you know, just to move people around, right? I mean, and you know, you not need to be there in the first place. A hundred years ago, that probably made sense because it is true the department has to have your fingerprints and has to have a picture, and they're the ones that are responsible for calculating your release date. So um, that that was the excuse back when everything was on paper. Um, however, they've invented computers a while ago, um, so there's really no reason at all. Cook County Jail certainly knows how to take fingerprints and take pictures. Um, there's no reason in the world they can't email all the stuff to the Department of Corrections. The Department of Corrections puts it in their computer, emails back and say, okay, let this guy go. Um, and that would solve the problem. Or what the department was doing for a while is they actually had a Department of Corrections employee on site with a hookup to their computer system who could do that processing right in Cook County Jail. They stopped doing that in August of 2021, so a couple months ago. And that's really where this backlog has built up of people who could just be released. So what you really have here is two big bureaucracies um, all fighting about who is going to keep somebody in, in, a car, in, a, in a cage when in fact, a lot of those people could simply be released home. And I would say all of them should be, but at least even under existing laws, um, many of them could go home today. Yeah, yeah, wow. I mean, thank you for shining light on that. And, um, and I think, I mean, you work a lot in the area of medical care um, or lack of you know, cruel and unusual type situations within uh, the, the carceral system. And so you had mentioned IDOC had, has reduced their COVID cases to five and understandably that's you know, wanting to have procedures set up um, if they are going to accept it anyone. But with, like you said, it sounds like a lot of these people could just go home, really. Right. Short sentences, you know, it's safer for everybody with, with people going home, not kind of just transferring people around. But you know, going into the, the medical care that's in or lack of in some of these facilities, um, what are the things that you work on as far as the medical care? Because I think, you know, people who haven't been incarcerated may not know um, how that works and that, you know, the only medical care that is actually required is through um, incarceration. And I think a lot of people don't know that. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your work in that area. Sure. So um, I'm not going to have, I don't have the data off the top of my head, but decades ago uh, in the 70s, I believe, um, the United States Supreme Court held that you, that intentionally ignoring a medical problem um, was inflicting unnecessary punishment on somebody for no good penological reason. There's no security reason why you should allow somebody with a broken arm to sit there without setting it, for example. And they said, and the Supreme Court basically said, Leaving somebody who you know has a broken arm without fixing that broken arm in severe pain is no different than if you broke it yourself because um, you're inflicting pain, unnecessary pain either way. Therefore, prisoners, because we have eliminated their ability to get their own medical care, therefore prisons have an obligation to provide that medical care to prisoners. Um, so yeah, in that sense, prisoners are the only people in, in this society to have a, or one of the few groups in society who have a constitutional right to medical care. Um, however, uh, it's a relatively high bar as to proving that you're getting inadequate medical care. And uh, obviously, um, 
prisoners in general are not going to be the favorite people in the legislature when it comes to allocating money. Uh, and therefore, medical care in prisons is generally pretty bad. Illinois is uh, among the worst of the states in terms of actually providing medical care. Um, the Pew Research Institute, that's not the right name, but Pew something or other, mm -hmm. um, did a study uh, several years ago, which figured out how much money prisons actually spent across the country on medical care for prisoners. California was number one. Um, and, and Illinois at that point was about, I think it was 48th among the 50 states in how we, much we spend per prisoner, not total, but per prisoner on medical care. And it wasn't by a little bit. We were about five or six, California is about five or six times as large as Illinois was in terms of what they spent. And California is by no means a perfect system. California is the system where the United States Supreme Court held a decade or so ago at this point, um, that the medical care there was so bad that it could not be fixed. And the only solution was to let people go. So yes, it's true that California is a more expensive state to live in and practice medicine and all those kinds of things than Illinois is, but not five times as big. Uh, and therefore, frankly, as I always say, Illinois gets exactly what it pays for. We pay really badly for medical care and we provide really bad medical care. So we at the Uptown People's Law Center have two ongoing class action lawsuits, um, one on behalf of people who are, have a mental illness who are in prison and are not being properly treated and one for medical care generally in prisons where they're not being given uh, appropriate medical care. Um, we settled both of those cases several years ago. Um, the medical one was, was settled about a year before the pandemic started. Uh, and sort of the vision that we all had was it'd probably take something along with 10 years to actually bring this, this system that was so bad up to constitutional standards. Uh, the pandemic did not give us 10 years, it gave us one year. And frankly, the system, the medical system simply collapsed. Um, they weren't able to do such simple things at Safeville, which is where the COVID really struck first, um, as take people's temperatures in order to figure out whether or not they were infected, um, give them regular assessments to see whether or not they had the symptoms of COVID. And that meant it spread throughout the prison system quickly because nobody was testing, nobody was figuring out what to do. Um, and it became such a problem that the governor actually ordered the National Guard to come in and provide medical care. Um, the medical care within the prison system simply collapsed. And it wasn't the National Guard with rifles, it was the National Guard Medicorps um, who brought in people who, would, who could do simple things like take temperatures, uh, move people into quarantine when they, when they had some of the symptoms um, and, and do all those sort of simple things that a well-designed medical system would just do as part of the routine. Uh, we, we learned that the Illinois Department of Corrections did not even have a full-time or any um, infectious disease expert on, on staff. Uh, COVID, obviously, that became extremely important, but it's important every year. Every year, the flu goes around. Um, and again, for the same reasons that COVID is so dangerous in prisons, people are close, closely packed together. There's no way to avoid uh, lots of interactions every day between prisoners and prisoners and between staff and prisoners. Um, and therefore, it, it is as the CDC and I think the World Health Organization just came out with a study in the last month or so um, saying that prisons were a hot spot. Uh, and of course, what happens in prison doesn't stay in prison. Um, many thousands of people walk out of prison doors every day back into the community every week and go back into the community, both guards and prisoners whose time is up in prison. Um, so what happens in prison goes into the community. And unfortunately, they go right back to the same communities, which are poor and black and tend to be the underserved medical communities in the first place. And that's part of the reason why COVID has had such a racially disparate impact as well, um, is it's, it's, again, it's a reinforcing cycle out of, the, out of the prison system into the community, from the community back into the prison system. 
And so still need medical care, right? I mean, it's the medical, the, the same medical issues that may have either came before incarceration or even been caused by incarceration are back in the community. Absolutely. And, you know, that's particularly for, true for infectious diseases, but it's a true for all kinds of things. Um, it's true for mental health. Lots and lots of people have their first schizophrenic break in prison um, who, who have not been diagnosed before, but also, you know, schizophrenic breaks often occur uh, in your late teens, early 20s, and are, are often triggered by high stress situations. And guess what? We lock people up in their late teens and 20s um, for the first time, and being locked up for the first time is an extraordinarily stressful situation. So it's not at all surprising that people who have that um, predisposition, genetic or otherwise, towards schizophrenia have their first breaks in prison. And sometimes it's treated, and sometimes it isn't. Um, if it isn't, then people tend to get thrown in solitary instead of actually being treated because. Obviously, if you're not in touch with reality, you're also not likely to be following the orders that are given you. And um, it's, it, if you view mental health problems as, as disciplinary problems, um, then you punish people for it rather than treating them. And that has been, unfortunately, not just in Illinois, it's been a real problem in Illinois, and it's been a problem nationwide, um, is, is not treating people and instead isolating them, punishing them for symptoms of their illnesses. I, I always use the, the analogy. And often mental health care is, is treated as a... Um, as a program, which you have to earn the right to engage in. It's a benefit that prison gives you is, is mental health care. I always say it's like if someone has a fever, um, you lock them in a room and say, as soon as you get your fever down, we'll give you some aspirin. Um, <laughs> as if this was something you could just control. If, you, if we punish you badly enough, the fever will go away. And right, the same it, is, like, it definitely seems like a lot of the um, so-called solutions are actually just exacerbating the problem. Um, as opposed to treating it. So it's, you know, I'm sure there's thousands and thousands of people that are really grateful for the work that you're doing, the class actions. And then, you know, just, I know that you've worked throughout your career one-on-one -on -one with people who are incarcerated too, and heard deeply about their stories and, you know, you know, taken that into your, your heart and carried that with you. Um, and so, you know, tips for people that are working with those that have been incarcerated, what are things that you don't say to people that have been incarcerated or people that are doing this work as far as being really trauma-informed? Like, what are things that you practice um, that other people could potentially learn from as far as like, to be the most trauma-informed in this work? I mean, there's a whole body of literature on this. So I, I really wanna answer that with a, a very narrow um, example. Um, so we get a lot of letters to the Uptown People's Law Center, over 100 a week. Um, and we will quite often get letters that are very angry, um, saying, you know, you did, you only represent white people or black people or Latino people, whichever one they aren't, um, or you refuse to help me and I have a good case or you're total assholes or whatever. I never want to hear from you again. Go away. I hope you all die. Um, and I always tell everybody, you know, step back, breathe, understand where they are. They're locked in a cage. Um, they have to lash out at somebody, you are a safe person to lock out in. And I don't, can't count the number of times that a day later, a week later, I then get a letter completely ignoring all that saying, can you please help me with blah, blah, blah. Um, <laughs> and you know, it's like, you're having a bad day out here. You have bad, we have bad day. We all have bad days. And, but here we have lots of different mechanisms to cope with that. A prisoner who's locked up doesn't. Um, they really have no mechanism to cope with that. Um, they haven't got family members they can talk to. They're in a cell with somebody uh, locked in almost 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Um, and therefore you can't really act out to that person because you have to live with them um, <laughs> constantly. 
Uh, and that's a, that is a real, um, a real tense situation to start with. It takes lots of, lots of energy to navigate cellmates um, living in that kind of close space with a total stranger. Um, so the fact that people lash out at you, the, the fact that you will uh, engage in what you would consider rude behavior or misconduct, um, you shouldn't take it personally. You shouldn't view it as, as a problem with the prisoner. It's a problem with the prisons. Um, and that, that's my main advice to, to people who are going into prison is, is think about where they are and what they're real, what's really going on in the before you write them off as terrible people. That's great advice. That's great advice. So um, I appreciate that. And, you know, the last bit of advice that I would love to get from you, I know our viewers would love to have this advice too, is those who are wanting to go into civil rights work, um, what would you tell them? What was, what did your mentors tell you um, to kind of keep you going in that line of work? And I know there's a lot of people that have wanted to go into civil rights and now there's a whole new group of people who are interested in getting into civil rights work. So what encouragement or tips would you give to them? I mean, I think that there are several, there are several things I would say. First, first and foremost is there are lots of ways to do this work. Um, the fact that you have a law license, assuming we're talking to lawyers here for the moment, if you have a law license, um, then you have a privilege that nobody else in society has. You have the privilege of walking into a prison and meeting with a prisoner. Um, you have the privilege of listening to what they have to say, and you have the privilege, with their permission, of course, coming back out and telling the world what they have to say. So you have the ability to amplify the voices of prisoners to let the world know what's happening inside a prison just by representing a prisoner. Um, if if uh, a, a journalist or at this point, even a state legislature shows up, a member of the state legislature shows up at a prison door and says, I want to talk to so-and-so, the prison officials can say, eh, we don't care, go away. We're not letting you in. If I show up with my bar card and say, I have a client in here I want to meet with, then they may be able to put me off for a day or two, but I'm going to get in and talk to that person. I'm going to talk to them in a confidential setting. So the very fact that you have a bar card means you can do this work, period. I don't care what else you're doing in your life, you can do this work. Now, and there are lots of ways to do this work. You can go to a big firm and look for the pro bono opportunities representing prisoners. There are an infinite number of prisoners who would like to bring cases and they would love to have the assistance of anybody at a, at a big firm, small firm, anything else. So you can take on a case for free. Uh, obviously there, there are lots of different ways, either through the policy side or through litigation side. Um, if, you're not a, if you're not a litigator and don't wanna be a litigator with your law license, as I, I think Alicia's at that point, um, you know, there's lots of policy work that you can do, right? Uh, there's an infinite number of things that could be studied, can be lobbied, uh, can be told to the press, can write white papers, expose what's going on. There's lots of ways to do that. Um, journalists have a way to, to do the same sort of thing. It's harder for them to get access, but um, through people like me, um, they can get connected with, with prisoners and eventually be able to tell their stories if they're willing to stick with it. And then the other advice is if you see, see an opportunity, grab it and don't let go. Um, that's what I did. You know, frankly, I knocked on the door of the Uptown Post Law Center and said, you need help. And it turned out they needed me. And, uh, you know, I was just a second year law student, had no idea what I was doing. Um, but I learned and I stuck there and I'm still here 40 years later, 42 years later. Um, <laughs> so, you know, if you see something that works, grab it and make whatever you can of it. You don't have to wait until it's there. Um, a former student of mine at uh, Northwestern um, talked her way into a job at a civil rights firm, which was not doing prisoner work and said, you ought to do prisoner work. Uh, I can bring this to you. So they set up a now prison project and now she's, she's running their prison project. Um, so, you know, be creative, figure out a way to do it and don't wait for the perfect opportunity. Just 
find something and do it. There's so much need to be done. You don't have to wait for a perfect opportunity. And, you know, I wish there were more jobs out there where you could get paid just to do this work. Um, but, you know, again, prisoners are not on, on the top of most anybody's list of people they want to invest money in, um, particularly on the litigation side. So, um, you know, figure out creative ways to do that work. Yeah. And you can make money at it. There are, you know, half a dozen firms in the country uh, that make a very good living taking prisoner cases. It means you have to be very selective and have a large group of prisoners who are willing to write you. Um, you have to say no a lot. Um, but, you know, if, you, if you're selective, there are bad things that happen in prison and people get seriously injured. So if you're good at it, you can actually make some money at this. That's good advice. So be attorney and be an attorney as a first advice. <laughs> if, not, oh, if you're not, though, think of some other way to do it. I mean, there's lots of journalism, right? Legislator, be a legislator, do a, policy. Right. I mean, do a book drive. Even if you're just a person, do a book drive. Yeah. Set up a correspondence with a prisoner so you get to learn what their life is like. So many prisoners, that's one of the most heart-rendering things I do is when I go on a legal visit with somebody and they tell me, you know, you're the first visitor I've had in 20 years. Wow. It's like, I, I can't be that person for you. I'm, you know, I'm here to do a case. I'm not going to be here on the long term. Okay. Uh, but if there are people on the outside who will write to them for years, you know, it's I, all the people I've dealt with who've set, who I've set up people that kind of correspondence with, they love it. And they say it is life-changing for them and for the prisoner. That's great. No, that's great advice. Holding, like finding opportunities, plugging yourself in, holding on to those opportunities, knocking on doors and reaching out, you know, um, reaching out to help other people. I think that's, that's really yeah. important. We all need help. And so, you know, you're, you're such a great force um, of energy and, um, and civil rights inspiration for so many people. So we just thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure as always. Absolutely. <laughs>